Film Society Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with today's leading filmmakers. It's August 24th, 2016. I'm Michael Lodemark, one of the show's producers. First off today, we're sharing a conversation with James Ivory, whose 1992 collaboration with the late Ismail Merchant, Howard's End, is being re-released this Friday in a beautiful new 4K restoration. After that, we'll hear an extensive discussion with Ang Lee, whose latest film will premiere at the 54th New York Film Festival this fall. Howard's End, which won three Academy Awards in 1992, is having its 25th anniversary this year. On the heels of the restoration's premiere at Cannes, we welcome James Ivory to the Film Society for a preview screening. After the screening, Ivory joined Film Society editorial director Michael Koreski for a Q&A. Let's go to that now. Let me just say it's an honor to be here with you. I've seen this movie many times, but never <laughs> with you in the room. So that's very exciting. Um, this really is a special film, and uh, I'm sure I'm not the only one who feels very strongly about these characters. And I feel like I've, I've, I've read the book a couple of times, and I've seen the film many times, and I feel like I've lived with these characters for many years. So thank you very much for making this. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, first, I'd like to ask about the, the adaptation and E.M. Forster. You've, you, you've uh, along with uh, your partner Ismail Merchant and Ruth Prowarjabala, the screenwriter, have adapted many works of literature, Kazuo Ishiguro, Henry James, but you've done a lot of Ian e. Forrester with Room of the View, mm. also in Morris and this. Right. So why, what appeals to, about, um, to you about Ian e. Forrester the most? Uh, about Ian e. Forrester generally or about... Uh, Ian e. Forrester uh, and, and Howard's End specifically. Um, well, I, I think uh, basically it's just his his uh, I- insight on, uh, on on life and uh, um, his humor, uh, which is always there. Uh, his very sharp uh, observation of what makes people tick, and particularly in England, the various classes tick. Um, this that was all appealing, and. Um, uh, I don't know. We, we I, I, well, I, I, you know, I really wasn't. Um, I didn't set out to really sort of specialize in in Ian Forster. Um, I got interested in him because I, I read Passage to India. But, but I, you know, I had a whole a whole sort of life in India, and naturally, I would have read the Passage to India sooner or later. And, and I, it was sort of almost required reading, and that's how I really got into. Uh, to, came to appreciate uh, Ian Forster, and but we were busy making other films, um, American ones and and uh, other Indian films, and eventually, um, I, what I wanted to do was to go back to Italy, where I started out with my very first film, was the film made in Venice, and I just wanted to go back to Italy again, just be there. I, I'd been away from Italy for 20 years, and I wanted to go, to go back and do something there. And then I just, almost by chance, read A Room with a View. And I thought, well, okay, <laughs> now I can go back to Italy. And really, that was, it was no more a serious thing than that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a very charming, interesting story. Uh, the whole idea of shooting a film in Florence was, though I, I didn't know Florence yet, I, I, I came to know Florence through that film. So that's, that's how we 
got, got into Hume Force was just whims, you could mm. say. And actually, uh, Forster never allowed, um, he never wanted his, his, his novels to be made into films. He always refused. Uh, a lot of people wanted to, to uh, very early on, wanted to make his, his, films, uh, his, his books into films. And he always said no. Um, and Satyajit Ray even wanted to make a passage to India at mm -hmm. one point, and he, he came to see Forster. And even though Forster was very impressed by uh, uh, the Apu trilogy or as much as he showed uh, him, uh, he still said no. And then um, Forster died, and some time passed, and we were doing this and that and the other, and, and um, uh, we, we ourselves made a film set in, in 1920s India, which was Heat and Dust, uh, which was a real uh, big success, and we enjoyed doing it. And then we got a call from, from King's College in Cambridge, which was, uh, they were the trustees of Forster's uh, books in the state and all that. And they said, could we come up to lunch? And so Ismail and I went up to lunch, and we, we kind of knew that, that probably they were going to say, Don't, wouldn't you like to make Passage to India? Hmm. And that's indeed what they did say. And we said, no, what we'd like to make is A Room with a View. And they said, what? <laughs> <laughs> to them, it was a little inconsequential comedy, something of that sort. But we didn't want to make another uh, another. Uh, 20s film set in the British Raj. We just made one. It was still playing in London. So he said, no, we wanted to make uh, A Room with a View. And I couldn't really say, well, the real, real reason I want to make Room with a View is to go and be in Italy again. I couldn't really <laughs> say that to them. But that, that was my reason. And, that's a good um, reason to so make a movie. So that's it all led to eventually. Once, then we made Morris in time. And uh, it was Ruth who was, uh, and of course, you know, uh, Passage to India was then made by David Lean. He got the rights to it. And, and um, so in time, Ruth thought, so it, was, it was her idea. She said, well, you know, really, the, 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 the Forster book that really needs to be made is, is Howard's End. Hmm. So we did it. And, um, well, there's, a, there's an amazing uh, sense. Again, again, I've read the book a couple times, including just recently, of everything almost seeming like um, it was directly out of the book. There's such an amazing loyalty, but also the way that he describes things, it really is up there on the mm. screen, and, and certainly with the casting. So um, the, the, there's an amazing cast here, but Emma Thompson, who of course won the Oscar for this film, this was really her breakthrough role. She'd mm. been doing comedy before this. How did you discover her? Uh, it was Simon Callow who told me about her. Uh, I, I'd never heard of her. I didn't know about her, and I hadn't seen that. Uh, I'd, I'd never seen her perform anything in London, and I uh, uh, didn't know that she'd made that film with uh, her, that f uh, first film that she made with Kenneth Branagh. I don't think she'd made that yet. But he, he told me about her, and then she came to read. And she didn't read from the script. She just, uh, she hadn't even seen the script. She just, I gave her the novel, and she read a bit, uh, couple of scenes from the novel and I thought well this is it she has an amazing quality and she really yeah. seems like Margaret Schlegel yeah absolutely absolutely to me also and um, can you talk about working with Vanessa Redgrave as well she's she's particularly luminous in this film mm. and um, it's almost like she's she's playing a ghost before she's actually a ghost <laughs> well that's true 
Um, I, well, from day one, I wanted Vanessa. I, there was never any idea that I that I, I just didn't think of anybody else. And we kept telling her, and and I think she we sent the script to her several times, and we never heard from her. And and uh, we, it was getting closer and closer to the time we were going to do it. We still didn't know. And then we heard vaguely that you know she said, "Well, yes, I will do it," but it was she was a bit. Uh, uh, she was thinking of so many other things in her political life and all the other films she was making and so forth. And she didn't really get it quite straight, which Mrs. Wilcox she was going to play. <laughs> and so it's, this is, it's true. And when she, she, arrived, she arrived on the, uh, on the set the first day to be made her hair and makeup, she knew she was playing Mrs. Wilcox. And then it took a bit of diplomatic uh, uh, revelation from the hairdresser that, in fact, it was the elder was going to play. Oh well, that was fine, and so she did. This, this is a true story, and that's that, incredible. That's the way it was. Well, it's it's an inside-out performance. It seems like she lived yeah. with the character for yeah. many months before she yeah. started. That's well, she's remarkable. Well, anything she does has got this. There's there is this, uh, as you say, luminous. Uh, I don't know how many of you ever saw the White Countess, but. Uh, the role she played in The White Countess is just uh, extraordinary, I think. Um, she's amazing in everything. Um, also, the house itself, obviously, right. is a major character, but the the way that it looks on screen also seems very similar to how it's described on the page. I wonder, um, I know it's a location scouting question, but it's it, where did you find this amazing house? Well, our... our um, uh, the produc production designer, uh, Luciana Righi, she knew the people who owned the house. And um, she approached them. Actually, the, the owner of the house was a, a, a dealer in antique silver, and, and it was his family house. And, and uh, all his kids had grown up, and they, they were—they didn't need such a big house anymore. It was good for a film. I mean, we took over the whole house, and, and uh, um, that's how. Were the in the interiors also what yeah. you see on screen? So they we were pretty much like place. that. I mean, we had to refurnish them. You always have to. You, you, you always have to do a lot to, you know, you usually have to refurnish a place when you get it. Um, I'm, I'm interested in that uh, this film, this beautiful new restoration, when it's released, it's going to be playing um, at the Paris Theater, which is close to here. Right. And I was recently reading uh, that A Room with a View, when it opened in New York, played for a, a straight year at it the did. Paris Theater. It so did. it's like a it, homecoming. It, it played for a straight year in that theater, exactly. Is that, uh, can you talk a little bit about? Uh, this is going back to Room of the View a little bit as well, because it really started this Forster cycle, but the, the immense success of that really seemed to pave the way. Uh, well, uh, as with this film, we weren't expecting necessarily success, though I, I did feel, after I saw the, the first uh, completed, um, not the rough cut, but the, the final sort of cut when we kind of whittled it down a bit, I thought, well, you know, maybe people will like this. Maybe because people don't always enjoy your films. They sometimes they don't like them at all. So I thought perhaps uh, <laughs> people will like it. But when when at the same the, the process with this film, uh, we had to. I mean, it was an enormously long film. It was uh, uh, well over three hours. So we had to get rid of like an hour, and. Finally, on the last day of cutting, we had gotten rid of the hour, and it was down to two hours and 20 minutes. And we figured, well, this is just the way it's got to be. <laughs> and we left the editing room. We, I edited up in the country in Columbia County. That's where our editing room was in our house. And we, Ruth and I left, left. It was quite late and walked up. It was summer. 
And she said, well, it is what it is. <laughs> That's her opinion. Was there anything that you lost that you cut from the film that you regret? No. Or that, or that you missed? You know, I can never remember those things. Mm. It, 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 I've often been asked that, whether the scenes you'd put back in. One or two little things in Morris I would have put back in. Mm. But um, no. That's good. No I regrets. Um, I just out of curiosity, just because we're talking about it, uh, having reread it recently, there were uh, there are, there's a scene in the book that uh, I'm fascinated by, which happens on the road where they accidentally hit a cat. Is that a scene that was cat or dog? They think they think that it's a dog. It turns out to be a cat. Right. Well, and Margaret Schlegel is very upset about this, and yeah. it almost disrupts this well, whole that, party. That, Did that's ever... an important uh, was an important thing to me. I read Howard's End, and didn't remember much about it, but I remembered that scene. Then I read it a second time, and I still didn't remember much about it, uh, or keep, get the story straight, but I remember that scene. Now the scene is, uh, uh, Charles Wilcox is driving Margaret, uh, going very fast, and they go through a little village, and they hit a cat, though she was afraid it was a dog. Anyways, they, and they, he wouldn't stop the car, mm -hmm. and she stands up and jumps out of the car. And, um, so I, I, to me, that that was a, that's the one thing I could remember about Howard's End, and, and I <laughs> thought this was going to be, this would be the most terrific scene to direct, and, and but we we couldn't do it. I mean, finally, you, you can't. Sh nowadays, you could show a, a a car running over a cat or a dog. <laughs> there would be ways of doing that, but but there was in those days there wasn't a way, mm -hmm. and so that essential detail, horrible as as it is. It wasn't there, and we could never. We shot the scene, hmm. but we never could get it to. It didn't make sense. It's just we didn't know what had happened. You couldn't. I hadn't thought it through. What you're saying make, made me think of something that I was thinking watching the film, which is that uh, the, all this beautiful production design, and which also won an Academy Award. Um, it's it's all really there. You know, you, you watch a lot of period films these days, and a lot of it is computer generated imagery. Mm -hmm. They don't really have to do that much larger scale set design, but when you see these amazing city scenes, you're seeing some very elaborate production design. Can you talk a little bit about the approach to that? And I think there are just so many memorable scenes, like even the interior of the department store at Christmas. It really feels like you're going well, back in time. That actually is Fort Newman Masons. And uh, well, we, they, you know, you just, uh, the art, art directors just do a hell of a lot of work in, in order to do all that. And, as I say, you have to refurnish everything, uh, usually, and bring a ton of stuff. Hmm. And um, it, 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 it was hard in, um, hard in those days, this before, before all the computer-generated uh, things that you can do now, it was hard to, uh, it was not a large budget to, to do city street, uh, street scenes with a lot of cars and, and uh, horse-drawn things and trucks and whatnot. Um, as you notice, there's only two. There are only two scenes like that. There's when they go through Admiralty Arch, and there's another one at the Bank of England. Hmm. And the rest is pretty much all interiors, or you're in the country where you don't have that problem. Right. But that's the magic of cinema, right? You feel like and you're just completely transported. I tell you, one of the biggest things that we could, that we never knew, I mean, something that haunted us from the beginning, and that was when would we mow that field? <laughs> <laughs> We knew it had to be mowed, but there, but we weren't sure we would be, uh, we would be able to, to shoot that scene, uh, 
and, and have the mowing of the fields. We thought it would, uh, we'd have to cut the grass and we wouldn't be able to mow. Uh, that was hanging over us like a sort of curse all through the shoot. And then eventually we, did able, we were able to work it out. So. Um, I also just wanted to ask quickly about Anthony Hopkins, because this is uh, directly after this, you went right into the remains of the day. And I think right. uh, another incredible film, and these performances by Anthony Hopkins are, are pretty extraordinary. Um, I just was wondering, and they're so restrained and subtle, he conveys so much without, without showing much. Mm. I'm just wondering what working with him is like. Is, it, is there, how do you get to that, that point of subtlety? <sighs> Well, you know, a lot of it, a lot of it is, it's not coming from a dir the director. It really is coming from the, the actors. And they, they are so, uh, they, they, they go into the character so deeply that um, um, they thought it out so well, I think. And it, it, it's not me saying, do this, do that, don't do this. Or, I mean, it's really what the actor feels and brings to it. And I've always felt, I mean, I've said this before and I've written it, um, but I, I feel that, that actors, are uh, very very deep in fact when in, in thinking about their their role i mean they go into it and they're bringing to it all their life experience and the, and the experience of other people they've known and they bring to it so much uh, uh in terms of emotion and, and psychological sort of penetration and, and and reason and so forth they've thought about it so very very deeply but it's a narrow thing mm. in a way it goes like that whereas a director is wide but shallow, <laughs> uh, because you have to think so many things. I mean, you cannot you cannot go deeply into all the things that you really would like to go into, or or you need to go into, because you have to think of everything. And I think that's the way it is. And all the actors are really, I mean, very very good actors. They're bringing so much out of up out of you know, truly out of their souls, and that's what they give you. And I think it's crazy. Um, to not let them do that. Uh, I, I mean, they have to show you what it is they want to do, what, they, what they've developed, what, how, what they've thought out, what it, what it means, what, what, what they think of, of the character. You have, to, you have to let them show you that. Now, sometimes they show you something wrong, or they're, they're, they're not, uh, you don't quite like something that they're doing, and then you have to guide them away from that. But on the whole, you have to allow them to, to demonstrate what it is. And in fact, that's not just the actors. I think that's true of all the artists that you hire for a film, whether it's the costume designers, or the hairdressers, whoever it is. Uh, you have to let them show you what it is they want to do. You may have difficulties accepting some of it, but you have to be, you have to, like, they're all artists. I mean, hmm. you have to respect that. Did they all read the book for, in preparation? Because it, it, oh, again, yeah. it oh, really sure. seems like they're... No, they all, they all read the book. There, there are some... Sometimes there are films where the actors wander around with the book and they bring it out and they come up to you and, they, and a particular scene they like, one of their scenes, and they say, well, you know, that's not in the script. Couldn't we do this? And so on. There's a lot of that that happens. And I remember when we made The Europeans... All the actors are wandering around with the paperback copy of the Europeans, and all of them are coming up and sort of pulling on me and <laughs> saying, "Well, why not this? This, this, this is so, so good. I love the, these lines. Why aren't they there?" So, watching it again after all these years, what what goes through your mind with these performances in the film? Are you does it kind of take you back to the moment, or do you think, "Oh, sometimes could yeah, have used sometimes, a different yeah, cut or sometimes, anything?" Yeah, it, it does. Yeah, I, I remember certain things. But on the whole, I don't. I really don't so much recall 
um, with individual scenes what what it was like to shoot them. I mean, some mm. there are cases when you do, but I, I I mean I don't remember them anymore. I'm very curious about the scene in which Margaret uh, basically for, tells Charles that she forgives him uh, for his involvement with, with 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 Jackie, and that scene Henry. is punctuated with fade outs, fades to black, and I. I it's, it's a very unusual sort of approach because there's nothing else like it in the film. And yes, I'm just sir, wondering yeah, what, what was your thought there? No, it's Simpsons and the Strand. We did the same thing. When they go to, have, when they go to the restaurant. Oh, it's okay. The same thing happens there. Well, it really, it really struck me with the particular but, uh, scene that I just mentioned. But, but uh, both scenes were very, very, very long. And particularly the one uh, where Margaret goes and forgives him. I mean, it just went on and on and on. You could not have, it was 10 minutes long or something. You couldn't have a scene like that, really. It was just... Everyone would have gotten bored. So we had to chop it about because uh, we had that room and he was wandering around in it and she was wandering around in it. And we had to make quite uh, dramatic uh, uh, jumps forward and, and, and take into account where everybody was sitting and standing and so forth. I mean, that's always, you know, the camera movements. And so we just had to chop it up and do like that. And um, that's what we did. And the same, uh, it wasn't quite like that as Simpsons because that too was a very long scene, but at least they were all sitting around the table. They weren't moving around. But that too got, uh, it was too long. And we, so that's, I just thought, well, let's do that. It's a brilliant use of editing because it does, it, I agree, it, it, it seems like it was conceived that way. It's, it, they're, it they're so it clever. Wasn't, it wasn't. It was conceived in the normal classical way. You just shoot this whole long thing and mm. then you edit it and then you have something that's like 10 minutes long and you don't want that. Hmm. It was a witty. What, what can you do? And so, particularly when there's so many camera movements in it and the, and the actors are moving all over the place. I love when it cuts in the restaurant scene and uh, it's moved on to the cheese course. You really feel like you're moving through the meal. That's right. why well, it, it yeah. really feels yeah. like it was intentional. Um, another question? I had a question about the music. Uh, your films are always uh, just really beautifully scored. How much does that play into the way you put the film together? Are you thinking about music ahead of time, or it's after? Well, you it's do done? think about uh, you think of it ahead of time if you if you have a source music. I mean, if if you if a performer, for instance, is singing or playing or something, uh, or there's dance music or whatever that kind of thing, you're in a nightclub, that all has to be thought out in advance. I mean, you have to work with that, and um, so that's very much planned. Um, but the, the the actual score is another, that that comes about after the film is edited, pretty much. But is it something that you suggest the sound? Like? Well, sometimes uh, you, you, it, it depends. It, it, it somewhat, it, it, it depends on who your composer is. Now, my composer on most of my films for for years from uh, was was Richard Robbins and and. Um, who I saw constantly, and and uh, you know we would talk about stuff, and and uh, but again, um, you, you have to you have to let them demonstrate what it is they want to do, or what they're thinking about it all the time, and you know bringing their own their own ideas to it, and you have to you have to learn what those ideas are. Um, sometimes um, you know you say I don't want that, and, and you throw music away, and. Uh, but on the whole, it's, it's, a, it's an ongoing process. But it's amazing how the, the, the subtlest musical cue really does, cha it changes the film in so many ways. I mean, mm. um, even the, the very opening, you have this, 
very dramatic swell of music, and then it goes back down to the to the bridal that, that, suite. That swell of music puts off projectionists, or did in the past. <laughs> they thought the music was too loud, and so there was this tremendous thing. And I, that, that I, I always that was one of the things I I complained about to Dick Roberts. I thought this is going to just uh, upset a lot of projectionists, and it did. And so they would turn down the sound. And if they turned down the sound, then all the sound and all the music was turned down. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I would have to go and warn the projectionist. I said, You're going to, there's going to be this blast at the beginning, and you just have to live with it. And um, that, yeah, that happened. And, and I love that choice. I think it's very dramatic, and it, it, it sets the mood for something right. substantial. Well, yeah. It, it, and he, of course he was right. But, uh. um, right here? Is there for you, uh, I could speculate, but I'd like to ask, is there for you an interesting problem about the relationship between music and meaning, whatever those terms mean. The phrase that's mentioned, I think, two or three times, uh, principally by this earnest, driven, angry young man. Uh, yeah, I mean, in some, I don't know what sense. But what, but what is the question? The phrase, music and meaning. Well, now, I don't you? know whether that's enforced or whether that's something that came from Ruth. I really don't know. I mean, I, uh, I'm, I, I, I'm not sure. I, I suspect it is Forster. It is, but a fascinating thing um, that I love, having just reread the book, about that, it's the fifth chapter of the book, mm. and uh, what Simon Callow says in the film, uh, and a, in a, that uh, Ruth has turned into a lecture, actually is written on the page by E.M. Forster. It's almost a philosophical uh, chapter that uh, asks question of, questions about music and meaning and, mm -hmm. and Beethoven's Fifth Symphony specifically. Right, right. So very, clev very cleverly, the movie turns it into a lecture. In the, in the novel, I remember that. Long, long, very interesting thing about goblins and elephants and all sorts right. of things. It's very interesting to read. Uh, but then at one point, who, who is it? Is it Margaret who says, well, does music have meaning? Mm -hmm. Doesn't she say that? And, I mean, I just... I mean, yeah, after the or, lecture, or is and, it then, Helen who asks and that? Tibby says that that's poppycock right. or something. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, uh, in in the novel itself, they are actually listening to to uh, uh, it's, it's the Fifth Symphony that it's a huge symphony orchestra at Albert Hall in London. Well, that was just we we could not possibly do that. We couldn't we couldn't fill up Albert Hall with thousands of extras, and we couldn't hire, uh, with our budget, an entire symphony orchestra. And so we had to turn it into a lecture mm. on, on, on the, uh, the symphony. It's very clever. So many of your films were made in England, mm -hmm. uh, and often in well, London. Well, not that many, in fact. It, really? I mean, uh, yeah. But there are more French films than English ones. Oh. People don't know that. I didn't know that. No. <laughs> it's true. But we, how we made um, we made the three Forster films, and then we made uh, uh, Remains of the Day and the Golden Bowl. Those are the ones. Mm -hmm. I mean, of the features. And Morris. Well, th three three Forster three films. Forsters, three Forster right. films and the Remains of the Day, and and then uh, finally the Golden Bowl. I guess because they're the most the most beloved and famous. It's it just seems that way. But there are so many films that you have made, and so many wonderful films to discover. And I highly highly recommend the Bostonians. With Vanessa Redgrave, it's it's really a magnificent adaptation. Yeah, I'd like to see that again. It's been years since I've seen it, and I'd like to see it here. Somebody bring that here. Yeah, 
they're a ways from uh, from uh, restoring that, but they will. Well, I hope so, and I hope that you come back when they show it. Thank you very much for coming. The 54th New York Film Festival runs September 30th through October 16th and brings the best new cinema from around the world to the Film Society of Lincoln Center. Tickets go on sale to the general public on September 11th. Film Society members at the film buff level or higher receive early access. To become a member, visit filmlink.org membership. VIP passes and subscription packages for the festival are now on sale and offer even earlier access to purchase tickets and secure seats at some of the festival's biggest events, including opening night, centerpiece, and closing night. To find out more, visit filmlink.org NYFF. Earlier this week, we announced an exciting addition to the lineup for this fall's New York Film Festival. In a special world premiere presentation, we will screen Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, the new film by acclaimed director Ang Lee. The movie is notable for its technical innovations, namely its distinction as the first full-length narrative film shot in 4K native 3D at the ultra-high rate of 120 frames per second. Lee's last film, The Life of Pi, had its world premiere on opening night of the 50th New York Film Festival in 2012. Following the premiere, Lee joined Selection Committee member Todd McCarthy for one of our HBO Director's Dialogues, where he talked at length about his varied and eclectic career. Let's go now to their conversation. Last night I thought Richard Pena made a very good, uh, had a good, very good insight into your career. Uh, is that, um, I mean, each project is such a surprise, so, much, so very different from the one before. And then he said, you know, the way we usually think about great directors is uh, they kind of establish their own world and they work within that world and so on. But then there's some, and I think, uh, Ang, you represent this, that each film is like a new exploration, a new exploration maybe of uh, your own interests, uh, aspects of yourself, aspects of things you, maybe you don't know about that you want to find out about. How, do, how did you, uh, how do you feel about that kind of uh, description? Does that Sit, sit well sweat. with you, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When he's introducing me, you know him in New York Festival, which I regard as a highbrow festival. Uh, yeah, I just keep sweating, and I don't know it's the suit or whatever. It's it's actually quite uncomfortable. Uh, it's actually he's not only talk about you know, a great or even good filmmaker. He's talk about auteur. Yeah. Uh, what does that mean? What does that French word means? Uh, you have many interpretations. Am I a tour? Or I'm just like, I, you see, I always thought of myself as filmmakers. We don't know people, studios or you know, film critics <laughs> categorize us. I think we're a bunch of racing horses. You know, we're at the, the gate. You know, once the gate goes, we just want to run. And the studio could sort of rain us a little bit, or producer. <laughs> <laughs> and and people, you know, judge who runs first or whatever. Uh, we don't know. We're like have a like a tunnel vision. Mm -hmm. we're, we're like that. We just yeah. So for me, there are the movies I want to make. I, I don't know what kind of filmmaker I am, or even am I an author? If people say I am, I am. And some don't see me as an author because how can an author go? You no. Know, different genres. Um, 
So I, I don't know myself. I don't know that answer. It's up to people to categorize my myself. But I, I'll say a few things regarding to that. Uh, I have a lot of curiosity. I feel my career is like a prolonged film school. I, I just love to learn how to make movies. How do you do this? How do you do that combat scene? How do you put boys with guns on horseback? Uh, how, how do you fly, you know, putting a wire on people, just yank them this way and slash them that way? Uh, now, for different genres, I get to learn movies from all those great filmmakers, like Hong Kong action choreographer, that's some of the greatest filmmakers. Here, there, they make sure you're doing safely. It's the, it's the storyboard artists that do the visualization. And, and in Hong Kong, is the choreographer. The people didn't go to school. They're some of the smartest filmmakers. And how about England, those you know, dry sense of humor. The, the, every place, they have their way of filmmaking. That just fascinates me. I just want to learn from them. And my biggest pleasure in making movies, watching people good at what they're doing when they're focused. They're like Pi training the tiger. He's in the God's zone. Nothing else but it. They don't need church. They don't need nothing. When I, no, I met a pilot, he's like the best assistant director in the world. Like three aircrafts in the air, and he's coordinate with the cameraman, he must be like a great cinematographer, the best AD. In seconds, you know, in the stretch of from here to there, nothing bump, you know, kill anybody. Mm -hmm. Catch that light doing this shadow, you know, all the calculation, and he's like in that zone. It just fascinates me. Or the tiger trainer in this movie, why day after day, as long as he extend, he, he needs to go to that, you know, tigers don't play. They're not actors. When they do this, they're for real. You do anything wrong, mm -hmm. when you're out of the zone for half a bit of a second, make the wrong decision, you're dead. So when people are in that zone, you know, some of us is to leave for this kind of thing. So I don't know why, why Life of Pi take me there, but it's, there's a calling. When there's a calling, or what does a Wyoming gay cowboy has anything to do with me? I don't know. I grew up in Taiwan. Uh, <laughs> But why did I cry over that? You know, why do I want to go to that mountain? Why did I not go to this you know, and that? I seem to be a nice guy. Why did I make Hulk? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or American Civil War. I, I know I keep identify with the losing side. Anybody lose, I have great sympathy for it. I want to make about them. I don't want to make the Yankees, but I make the you know, people lose the war in the South. I, I don't know. Uh, I don't know why a floating island attracts me. I, you know, I don't know those things. Sometimes after the movie, people ask you to give them answers. And I, I don't really <laughs> have them. I, I, I literally, I feel like a racing horse. Those, it's like there's a fate, there's a calling in me. When I feel that, I have to jump in and make the movie. So I, I, I don't really know if I'm an author or not. I just feel like I, I just love to be basking in this large film school mm. that just keep making movies one after another, and people seem to respond, a lot of them. It changes their lives. It changed my lives. Uh, I live for that kind of thing. Well, I would love to explore a little bit about something I don't know much about, which is your uh, youth and uh, upbringing and how you uh, 
latched on to cinema in the first place. Uh, what kind of a kid were you? Were you uh, reading a lot, seeing movies, a uh, cultural family? Uh, what, what was your, how did you get on the track that took you into the arts? I, I was a very uh, spaced out and docile kid. Nothing showed I would be an artist in the future. And the way I grew up, I was very repressed in that way, and artistically. Uh, some of you grew up in that environment in Asia, maybe. Go to a good college and be useful, man, is the thing to do. Basically, academic life, which I could not put my, my focus on. I was a very docile child. I was never rebellious. I never felt rebellious until I was like 45. <laughs> I started making martial art films. I started to defy this and that. It never really come out, or hulk out, as you said. Yeah. Um, I never say a word again. My father is a very stately man. He's the principal of my high school. That's pretty bad. <laughs> uh, he's a good principal. I was a good student. Um, and that was the best high school in Taiwan. So it's very boring. I don't really have any play or play a little bit of basketball weekends, watch one movie, two movies a week probably. Uh, I was just very spaced out. My mind is drifting. I don't know. So how did you discover? Uh, I felt like oh. a lot of a waste of my time. But I was brooding, I guess. And then I flunked the college examination. I felt like a loser. Uh, and because, you know, in Taiwan you have to do military service when you reach 20, so I, I got into the Academy of Art. Um, you know, just nobody paid attention, just so I had like a hideout place before the next year's exam, national exam. Uh, and first time I stood on stage, it just bang on. You know, I was electrified. I was saying, that's it, that's, I remember the spotlights like this shining on my eyes. I sort of can feel, it wasn't like this, that you, you're lit. You know, it was dark out there, and I feel I belong to somewhere in the dark. And like my soul started to come out or something. Um, that I, I want, that's what I want to do. I was 18 years old. That's the first time I had a taste of art or theatrical or dramatic experience. And ever since, I just keep learning what I like to learn. A uh, big pivotal time was I came to the state, actually. I started, um, you know, the, the ac actual really good dramatic education. I went to NYU film school. But didn't you um, go to Chicago first? Uh, Champagne. Yeah, because I wondered, wasn't that a rather big deal or bold thing to do, to decide you're going to come to the States uh, no, to every, study at that time? Every good student sort of come abroad mm. at that time in Taiwan. We finish college, you finish your military service, and then you go abroad, mostly to America. And to go further study, that give you a life, like a better start, whether you go, to tai go back to Taiwan or stay here. Um, so I just follow, well, my father didn't want me to go to, you know, do anything entertaining. So I sort of made a deal with him, just, just let me do this. I'll go to a theater school, uh, study theater, get a degree in America, maybe I can start teaching. You know, uh, so maybe sometime you grow up, change your mind, so you can still have like a, a respectable job. Yeah. So that's why I came here. But of course I never did that. 
You know, um, when I did Sense Sensibility, my father said, you know, at this rate, I got seven nominations for the Oscar. At this rate, maybe you'll get your first Oscar in age 50. Maybe you can start teaching things, something for real. <laughs> <laughs> You're happy? Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's my relation with my father. Yeah. Are you an only child? No, my, I have a younger brother and okay. two older sisters. So was that your first uh, trip to the United States when you came to be a student here? Had you been out yeah. of Taiwan uh, much before Taiwan, that? Taiwan, didn't speak much English no? at all. I spoke like uh, you saw the sailor on the screen. Yeah. You must go, like that's sort of English. Uh, half of the class I didn't understand, but I was learning, taking a lot. So what was it like for you at NYU? Uh, did you make uh, friends, associations? Uh, what were you actually doing? Uh, did you start making, making movies, films yourself? what yeah. I really like to do. Yeah. I was like really happy and fulfilled. Yeah. I, I love theater. I, I think at first I wanted to be an actor, but then I didn't speak English, I couldn't act, I couldn't get the parts. <laughs> and I had to direct, and I got so pissed. <laughs> As a young student, I thought, oh, theater directors are losers. The best ones go to acting, and I don't want to direct theater, who cares about them? If I, wanted, if I have to direct, I, I'll direct movies. So I, I got into at NYU, and it was like, Everything turned out to be so easy, just sight and sound, just go shoot stuff, tell a story with, with the camera. So that was like easy. I don't need to speak much English. Well, theater's talking head, it's, it's mm. very verbal culture. But uh, cinema is, it's, it's a strange thing, I just click right away. I did it because it's really easy and, and everybody listened to me. I, I don't know why I didn't speak much English, I hardly had no much friend or anything, but on the set, if it's three people, five guys, uh, people start listening to me. I said, put this here, it's, you know. There are people who talk very smart, I don't know where, they really struggle with the camera. If I put somewhere, it just makes sense. So people start listening to me, I thought, oh, I must be like a natural film, filmmaker or something. <laughs> you see, when, when I did Sense Sensibility, I spoke broken English, and I direct Sense, you know, Jen Austin. After that movie, I thought, if I can do this, I can do anything in cinema. <laughs> so after that, I'm, I'm like gone. Like, I, I try anything. I, I, I'm still so impressed, even now, and after all the films you've made, that you had the guts to make that film because uh, uh, I don't know if you'd spent any time in England before you made that. I went to school there. I grew up here with familiarity. I wouldn't dare make a film <laughs> about 19th century England because of the cultural nuances. So many. Uh, my new things well, would be so... Out. After uh, five generations, actually everybody's guess. So, but I found out after I directed. Um, um, well, I, in 1979, I took a summer. And I, was, I was in Champagne. They have a program to study theater in England. So I did that study. Uh, Stratford Avon, all the theaters in London. So that was a great program for me to have first taste of the British way of doing drama. I was very inspired. It, even though I was in awe, I was very afraid to be there because I didn't understand them. And back then, there seems to have an attitude. I was very afraid, actually. Um, and then I spent half a year 
in England. Uh, my cast and crew, they're very generous. So I had an educational sort of a half a year, just pick up what it takes um, to make that movie. Not only in you know, the English texture, but that was the first period piece I ever done. Um, it's my first taste, and after that, I don't want to do anything else. So the art department, all those people, they're very nice. They just explained to me. We went to the museum, go to sites, um, paintings, literature, or costume, how it was done. And it was, you see, I, I didn't make those movies overnight. If I was put in that position, or even after I do a movie, if I have to talk about it, I don't know how to talk about them. Um, but making movie takes a long time. This one, nearly four years, at least a one year's process. So little by little, it's, it's how you survive every day, how you make decisions, how you learn about little things. It's very pragmatic. Uh, I, I really enjoying uh, that kind of process. And when you make a mistake, you can amend it. You know. uh, there are many ways to amend it. It's not like you flip and it's life and death. It's not like that. So this is a long process of learning, of adapting, and then I don't need to be an expert on anything. I just need to uh, make decision that's good for the movie. I could tell right from wrong. Uh, that's all I need at, at the moment. Or seemingly, you act like I know. <laughs> and then things will go on its own, and somehow you just see it. the movie wants to go certain ways. And you have to listen to it. I always say, I, I pray to movie God. And it seems to be a voice saying, you know, the movie wants to be this way or that way. And I'm kind of learning and catching up. When you went back to Taiwan after you were in New York, did you have any uh, contact or influence, any affiliation with Taiwanese film industry and some of the filmmakers there? Even before, had you seen like King Hu's film? at the earlier, and did you uh, meet Hu Shan and some of the other directors who were, because Taiwan c cinema was coming up at a certain point, and uh, I just, or, if you, or were you working completely apart from these people? It's both ways. In terms of actual working, um, I, I'm quite different. I, I live in New York City. I do my development and post-production here. I go anywhere to make movies, but my base is here. So, and I started out here, uh, and I brought that New York independent film kind of filmmaking back to Taiwan. Uh, I think my work has certain impact on them. Um, I'm kind of the most famous Taiwanese filmmaker, you know. <laughs> if, if not in the art house circle, but like in the broader sense, uh, I got an Academy Award. So there's just gotta be some impact uh, in the industry and I brought this movie back to Taiwan and the movie's done in Taiwan. So that's going to have some influence. Um, I, I'm friends with all of them. I consider myself the uh, same group. I, I very much like to be identified as a Taiwanese filmmaker. Um, you know, I like to be identified as a New York in indie too, but uh, I think at heart that's where I grew up. We, we took the same nutrition growing up. We have the same a tendency in certain ways, especially in my generation. I, I'm a little younger than Ho Xiaoxian and Edward Young, uh, a little older than Tsai Ming Liang um, and the newer generation. But I absorb the same nutrition from the same earth. 
uh, same tradition, same complexity, uh, complex, like there's a certain thing you wanna break through, um, or political senses that I share the same. But my training in filmmaking is down here in New York, so somewhat different. That put me in a kind of a strange place. Um, I consider myself as, it's, it's almost like an oddball, either there or here. I'm mainstream there in Asia, not just in Taiwan, and art house here. My film <laughs> will be blockbuster over there. It's like big release, and here, um, other than the Hulk, it's always being platform release, and th this will uh, probably go bigger than my my usual. So that's a little nerve wracking for me. So I, I don't know uh, where where am I am. Sometimes I feel I'm floating, but uh, I, I the the actual Chinese culture I I absorbed in, in Taiwan. So I was very influenced by. Uh, King Hu, or Li Hanxiang, this kind of uh, older generations. They came from China and they put the picture of how the Chinese look, not just from history book or how the school teaches you or how your parents teach you, um, but the visuals of China is set by those filmmakers. So my idea of China is, is like that in the picture. When I go back to China, it doesn't look like that. But I still is insist on that old-fashioned Chinese, you know. I think that will, something like Crouching Tiger, will feed back to Chinese culture. Uh, that's how culture and history goes. So those older filmmakers uh, that really influenced me, not only uh, in filmmaking, because I grew up watching their movies, but also uh, culturally, uh, just visualize China and how Chinese should behave that has a big impact on me. I think that feedback to my audience today, to the younger generation, um, not only in the Chinese society, Taiwan, it's kind of going global now. Um, so it's, it's an interaction. I'm not close friends with any, any of them, as close as like James, but we're, we're, we're the same gang, I say. Well, you mentioned the audience, uh, and you have such an international perspective yourself, and there's so much talk now. You know, the international audience uh, for all films is bigger than the American audience, which is a change from... So do you perceive, or like when you speak with industry people, what's, how would you define the difference between the American audience and the global audience, if there is a difference? They're similar and similar every day. I, I think the movie is really established by the American, you know the mainstream movies, that's gotta have an impact global-wise. So there's a market of mainstream audience that's sort of quite universal. Uh, a producer will answer that question a lot better than I do. And then there is a crust of art house. There seems to be very similar too. Uh, they, they don't have a lot of difference in, you know, across the street from here or our house in Taiwan or in Korea, or, you know, they, they have a very similar taste. Um, I, I think they're similar and similar. I think in some ways, uh, to me the audience in American has a certain stubbornness, <laughs> like 
things that I'm not talking about intellect like like yourself or people sitting here, like like a like a mainstream audience. There's certain ways the American do's they establish cinema global wise. They very much insist on the rules of that. I think the global audience seems to be more flexible. Uh, that's how I notice them. I think because cinema, a lot of the cinema language and ways, you know, how genres work, were established here. Uh, for long enough, people get a little stiff, uh, insistent on certain ways of doing. That goes from Hollywood to critics to uh, your broader audience. Uh, that phenomenon is, I, I found, global-wise, is a lot more flexible. They're let less trained, but these days they get similar and similar because everybody's watching pretty much the same movie, whether it's the art house or mainstream movies. And no, nobody makes mainstream movies like Americans, so everybody still watch American mainstream movies. Yeah. That's that's a global. America makes movies to feed the global wise audience, not just for Americans. They're less and less American, more and more global. It's funny that you, ironically, you broke into the mainstream in the biggest possible way, though, with Crouching Tiger, which was such a sensational international success. And had you uh, been a martial arts uh, fan? I mean, going back to King Hu and Touch of Zen and so on, or did you, is something you had uh, fallen into more recently? I mean, what what kind of kicked off your your uh, interest to such an extent you wanted to make a film like that? I was 45 when I made the movie, so it was like I was dealing with my childhood fantasy and midlife crisis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I grew up with those movies. Uh, King Hu, it's uh, one of the starter doing the the martial art, the wuxia style, which has a long tradition from the, the Pulp Fictions that we secretly read growing up, and also the Cantonese the producing Hong Kong those B-movies, black and white, you know, you know. Uh, they don't fight with fists and stuff, they fight with swords, so it's the swords type. It's more acrobatic, it came from the tradition of picking opera and those pulpy fictions. Um, so that's, it's all superheroes. Uh, so growing up you have to know those things. And then, uh, then Zhang Chest, the other directors, contemporary, he started a fist fight, you know, the guy's shirts off and uh, doing fist fight, not based on weapons. And then Bruce Lee came along in that tradition. So there, there are actually two schools of martial art film. One is the, the fist type, more grounded. The other is the, the wire work, flying in the air. That's King Hu, sort of one of the starters. So they both take their way. Sometimes they combine, sometimes they separate. And in the meantime, we, I grew up at the same time, just a little bit before that, there were 10 years of the, the operatic movies, musicals. They're all feminists, even men played by women. And so that, that's an important period for me too, because I sing the songs, everybody watched those operatic movies. It's very feminine, tear jerkers, fantasy tales social satires, what have you, but they're all singing. And then people get tired of all this feminine stuff and they go for the, you know, the shirts off, fight. Um, so I, I grew up with those movies. Um, 
both made in, many in Hong Kong, but some in Taiwan. And Taiwan, of course, you have those uh, propaganda uh, movies, like Life is Healthy, you know, that kind of movie. They call it new realistic realism, Taiwan new realism movies. So I grew up with those movies, plus Hollywood movies, uh, nothing artistic, but it's, you know, that's the kind of upbringing I had. So in Crouching Tiger, I sort of blend all of them together. It's a really a hybrid of how I grew up. It's like a feedback of you know, what I took in. So actually, it's a mixture. It's not really a genre film. In that kind of genre, the first minute you sit down, you want people to know that you're in the right theater, that they start a fight like yeah. you know, before the seat is hot, uh, it's warm. <laughs> And I prolonged that to 15 minutes before the first fight, and our hero dies at the end for some trivial reason. So I really defy that genre. People really have like raised their eyebrows about that movie in in the Chinese ter territory. It's it's not quite a genre, but here because you don't have the burden uh, of the history, so people just take it, soak, soak it in really easily. Uh, it, it works actually a lot better here. It's really a hybrid. Uh, but basically for me, that's whatever I took in, I, I, I feedback. And so then was the Hulk uh, the continuation or culmination of your uh, uh, midlife crisis and... Uh, yeah, there are five <laughs> years I made these two movies. Okay. That's my version of midlife crisis. <laughs> so what yes. do you, are you amazed or are not at all surprised at the uh, overwhelming uh, success now of what Marvel has done? with that, all their characters and Avengers and so on. Did you see that coming at the time? Yeah. Uh, no, I, I didn't know. I, when I make the Hulk, there's no such genre. You know, there are successful movie made from the comic book. I have a lot of respect for the comic book, I, but I, I didn't know, or let alone respect for the genre, because superhero wasn't not, not a genre. I, I made the movie like a psychodrama and a horror film from the 70s, uh, 60s Italian movies. That, that's the genre I took on. It's a psychodrama uh, that I did. Unfortunately, the, right before us, the Spider-Man comes on, it becomes a genre. So the studio has to sell like Spider-Man. I don't think the movie gets a, a good shot. I didn't lose money or anything, but, you know. But it, it was an odd uh, situation, because I, I wasn't aware of that was coming. Uh, the superhero genre. Um, so out of and it's doing so well. Yeah. Uh, well, it's enormous now, of course. Yeah, it's um, a very successful genre. But back then, when I when I did the movie, uh, not really. Mm -hmm. no. So, two other American films you made actually before were uh, the Ice Storm and uh, Ride with the uh, Devil. And so that those are so different, you know, and so interesting, and two very specific milieu in American life. And what, what attracted you to each of those two uh, rather rarefied topics? And Civil War is never done, you know, and that's what one of the amazing striking things about the film is that it's a very specific aspect of the war uh, that is never seen. I'm just, so I'm wondering what, what lured you to those two, two subjects? You know, I, I grew up in Taiwan. I choose to live in this country. Um, um, Unlike my children, they have no choice. They're born here as a Chinese-American. But I, I chose to live here uh, partly because you know, the film industry 
uh, I want to make movies here because uh, nobody make movies like American. It's very attractive. It's like if you're into space, you work for NASA. If you're a basketball player playing the NBA, it is like the NBA for me. So it's very attractive. But other than that, I, I think I, I choose to like American ideas. Yeah. Americans, a country, is not, it's not come together by history or blood, genes, or from the earth, the taste of earth or culture. It's, it, it comes together by an idea. So that's, that's something very special. Uh, I like that idea. So I, I think all my American film, even including The Hulk, is somewhat of an American study, my two cents in uh, how I feel about America, what American should be, what American struggling on. So that, no, I cannot live here and choose to live here and raise my children here and even somewhat take roots here without like paying attention to it and feedback. So those are the movies just naturally attracts me. They're not, they're probably not mainstream, but that's my, my two cents, so to speak. And I didn't create those material, you know, those books attracts me and, and also James is a good feeder for, you no know, something interesting. Like the ice storm, he said, oh, me and my wife, we're, we're big fans of this young writer, it's very interesting. So it's not even for movies. So this is the second book I read about you know, Rick Moody's work. And on page 200, exactly, there's one image of the kid being electrified and sliding down the ice. Just that image made me want to make the movie. And so that was interesting. I, I, I got more nervous when the movie hits the mark, when I, like halfway into making the movie, oh, this is like hitting some nerve. Like nobody make this movie. Uh, the same, same thing with uh, Brokeback Mountain. So I, I thought that was an art house movie, strictly art house. When it hits the shopping mall, I start getting nervous. Oh, people are gonna lynch me, okay, cowboy. <laughs> what did I do? So, uh, that movie's kind of, uh, I, I was quite nervous making the, um, the ice storm. Like when I start doing my research, the, the first thing I noticed, people didn't seem to want to remember 1973. They remember 72, 74, but no, 73, they don't remember. I have a sense that I, I, I probably step into the minefield, like, oh, it's a dangerous thing. Um, it's touchy. But I, I did the film. I, I never seen anything like that about America in 73, but it's, it's so truthful. Uh, same thing with Rival the Devil. I can be bashed by critics by like, what is this movie? But I sometimes I feel, you see, there, there's a, it's a cultural convention I didn't know, history of cinema and cultures that I wasn't aware of. I'm a fresh eyes. It's like when I do 3D, something actually very realistic, because camera catches whatever is real. But when you see things, you see in your mind's eyes. You put it together. You have your habits. Uh, that I wasn't aware of. I was fresh eye, I was like fresh camera. When I make those movies, I did my research. Uh, linguistically, I want to go back to history, the look, and you know, I did all my history works. I work harder than anybody. You no, know, I'm a foreign filmmaker when I 
do those films. I don't assume I know, and I didn't know. So they're actually kind of accurate, but they don't necessarily hit, because <laughs> culturally they're, they're different than American movies have made. So uh, those movies are in an awkward place. They're commercially flopped. But over the years, there seems to be a turnaround. People appreciate those movies. You know. Now, I haven't seen it, but I think there are two versions of uh, Ride with the Devil, and there was one that came out, and then you did a longer one. Uh, did you have to just cut it down more at the last minute to put it in theaters, and do you much prefer yeah. the version that's... If uh, I know it was a flop, I wouldn't cut them down. So. <laughs> Uh, commercial flop, the movie I'm very proud of, uh, the movie. Uh, I, I think it's a pretty great experience for everybody who makes the movie. Uh, it rings true to many, many people, I think. So when, um, uh, when they asked me to do a, a Blu-ray of the movie, uh, Criterion, they're very nice. They did the ice storms, oh, the next movie. Um, it'd be cool to put it up. I said, how about... Uh, um, a director's cut. I never do director's cut. I struggle every movie with producer, studio, whatever, big or small. But I never regret. I think the one I put up is always the best. Uh, that's the one movie. There's some things I cut out I think I, sh I probably shouldn't. Uh, not just because of the pr time pressure to make it shorter, but at that time, I, was, I don't know what I was thinking. I should put it back. So I have second thoughts about those. and. I'm glad I get to do that. On Brokeback Mountain, uh, I mean, it's been a few years now, but uh, uh, I know you spoke about him at the time, but what would you like to say about uh, Heath Ledger now, in retrospect, working with him, what kind of actor he was, and uh, when you remember him, what do you remember uh, in your working relationship most intensely? Uh, intensely, that's... Well, just, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's an intense actor. Um, you know, people complain, they don't understand what he's saying, but they're affected by him because the whole time, for two months, he's biting his teeth like that. It's <laughs> clinched like it's for the entire two months. The next, it's unfair to the next movie he's make, making, it's a comedy. The next day after we wrapped, he flew to, to Venice to make a comedy, just to relax. Uh, he's a very intense actor. Um, a superb actor. I don't know if I'm good friends with those actors when they're so intense. It's work, working. And when you're working on a career, a character together, a movie together, you give each other your best. So as a person, I, I hardly, sometimes I feel I hardly know him. But as a director, actor, uh, it was very in intense. You know. I was wrecked after the two Midlife Crisis movie. So I barely had the strength to finish that movie. So the shot was very modest. I didn't have any cinematic ambition. I just wanted to make a movie about love. Uh, I, we're up in the beautiful Canadian mountains in south, southern Alberta. All the actors are wonderful. It's very loving. Um, so it's a wonderful shooting experience for me. And the actors are young and in you know, scarily good. Uh, it's a sc it scares me how good they are. They're like in the early 20s. Heath was like 20, he was the oldest. He was only 24, 25. It's brilliant. 
he worked very closely to anything. Uh, I remember there was his ranching. I remember the, when he first left Brokeback Mountain, he'd go to an alley and start to vomit, you know, ratching. Um, we're shooting something else. It was, just, it was a low budget film, kind of an indie film. We're shooting somewhere, and then I see a piece of cloud coming. I say, oh, let's move on to that shot, because I want to catch the cloud in the you know, four o'clock lights, and it's in the alley. We'll put it on the board for in the palm uh along the wall. So it's all oh, hurry up, hurry up. And he has to punch the wall and, and screaming and, and ratching. And it was a beautiful shot. Of course, it, it's not going to get in the first take. So on third take, he did really well. Everything goes well. And it was a long take. Oh, could you just saying a little have trouble hearing, so just to make sure you have a mic. Oh. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Thank you. Um, did, did you miss much of what I said? Oh, I was just saying, so the shot is about him punching the wall, and by the third take, he's, he started to bleed. He's punching so hard. Um, and the shot seems to be okay. But I, I there's something I want to make an adjustment. So I went up to him and said, do you have one more? Not only is punching, bleeding, he's like, he's really giving it. After three takes, like, it's still reaching the, the limits. And the assistant director also, also produced it. It's an older gentleman. And he was like, oh, that's bullshit. You can't do it. <laughs> the actor's bleeding. <laughs> that was a good shot. And, uh, he's, I've been in business like a long time. He didn't want to do that again. Plus, we have many shots to come. That's a good take. Now, what are you doing? So I went up to Heath. He said, let's do it. It feels good. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> so the fourth take, that's the one of my favorite shots in my whole career. There's a piece of beautiful clouds just coming, kind of tumbling weeds, and the background cowboy who look at him get gets scolded. It's perfect. It's like so beautiful. It's a perfect shot. He didn't mind bleeding, you know. It's a heart-wrenching scene. He's a real, genuine real actor. You know, I, I try to avoid watch uh, that Batman movie where he played Joker. Yeah. It was very disturbing to me to watch him on screen. It, it really hurts. I don't know how to talk about him, but I know that... Um, Just make sure you hold, hold the mic up. Yeah, yeah. But I know that uh, when, when you work on a character with an actor, you go really deep uh, with them. I don't care about friendships, social addict, whatever. You're in the zone um, that you're giving each other the best. And I think he's at his best. I think he sees me too. And I want to remember him on the screen and, and the work that we did together. Uh, I, I miss him. It hurts to think about him, actually. I can imagine, yeah. Well, you know, I, want, I don't know whether you watch your films with different audiences, but I'm wondering in that case, uh, if there was, you felt a difference in the vibe of the audience, let's say if you were watching it in New York or LA or someplace like that, and if you ever watched it, let's say in Texas or Wyoming or Montana or someplace like that, where it's a totally different kind of audience, were there wildly divergent reactions to in the that film movie? Different kinds of audiences? You mean Brokeback Mountain? Yeah. Strangely enough, it's very universal. Yeah. Uh, 
People are saying, oh, the mid-American, you know, it's scary if you bring in a movie. No, you have to give them credit, it's the same. Uh, I think they're more open-minded there than, uh, than in San Francisco. I have some strange you know, uh, encounter in front of People ask strange questions. But I went to Denver, I went to Wyoming, and, and Dallas. It was very, very warm embrace in the movie. Uh, there'll be theaters like full of cowboy hats. They're not coming like <laughs> in great spirit, like only almost celebratory. Um, so the preconception of how regions work, it, it it's not true. Uh, so I'm glad I had the chance to find out because of that movie, because I travel with it. Um, no, it was, it's, you know, same thing in Taiwan or anywhere else. The, the response being quite universal. That movie, not, not all the movies like that. But with that movie, um, if people go to the theater, it's pretty much the same. But of course, there's a, a chunk of people, you cannot pull them to see that movie. Um, it, it's strange when we're going to the, through the Oscar campaign, when it hits, 80 million, the box office, you say, oh, no, we still have like two, three weeks to go, we're gonna hit 100, whatever, and it just stopped. Just steadily stopped. It's before Oscar, the hottest time for the movie, and it just stopped. It feels like whoever wants to see the movie already seen the movie, yeah. maybe twice, is <laughs> that to that style, you can't put more people to see the movie. So that's also true, too. I don't know where that come from, uh, but my experience sitting in the theater with the audience, very much the same. Uh, I think people are very affected by that movie. It was also an important movie, even though the role was not huge for uh, Anne Hathaway. And I think yeah. you think very highly of her as well, don't you? She's so good, I was amazed. I don't even have time, but when I auditioned her, <laughs> I, I didn't know her, I'd never seen those princess movies. Um, <laughs> The casting director said, you think this is crazy, but I think she's, she's great for the role. Uh, she's gonna come in in her lunch break. She's shooting right at the, at the lot. I was in, at the Universal lot, because it's a focus instead of Universal. Uh, she's shooting a parade scene, and she's gonna come in and apologize for her look. Uh, <laughs> so just don't mind that, because she has to go back to shoot. Uh, so ignore that. She, she's a good actress, actually. So I met her. She coming in the princess, like <laughs> totally princess dress, coming. Of course, apologized profusely for her look and the makeup. And say, oh, the role is Texas princess, not far off. Just do your thing. Just, just fake a Texas accent. Just see how it looks. Oh, it's just, it's just lovely. And of course, she got the part. Before that, people don't really see her as a serious actress, but she is. No, she was like 21 or so. Uh, really, really brilliant. Um, I, I think I did the right choice, uh, there's no doubt. Uh, no, I'm so glad to see her, her career blossom and, and she deserved everything. Um, but I remember there's one shot when she's in one of her early scenes, she watched Jake Gyllenhaal do the bow writing, and when she come up, it's just, such blossoming of beauty and like, I was so happy that I captured that. What, uh, you, you, 
all your choices are so unexpected. Are there any, is there some sort of film in the future you want to make sure you make? I mean, is there, uh, I remember many, many years ago, uh, it was his final visit to the United States, I had the great fortune to meet David Lean, and I asked him that question, he completely shocked me when he said, you know, I'd really like to make a musical. <laughs> and so that came out of left field, and so is there, either, is there some kind of film, uh, science fiction or, or uh, musical or anything else that you were really one day determined to do? Uh, I don't know. I don't have a checklist, to be honest with you. Uh, many people approach me with musicals. Uh, I guess because of Crouching Tiger, they think, you know, there's one meal I had with my agent. I turned down five musicals. <laughs> so, so a lot of people approach me with musicals. Um, I, I found that's hard. Uh, I have to find the right niche, because these days just people feel like it and start singing. Uh, I, I think it, it's harder than the 50s, 60s. Uh, I think the audience doesn't quite have that innocence anymore. You have to find the new excuses and form and to do that. So when the, um, when the chance comes, the right material, I'll certainly give it a try. Um, I will probably be afraid to try ghost story, because you know, I, know I become the film I'm making. I, I'm really getting to that world. I think that would be probably very scary. I can treat a movie like a ghost story, but you know, the actual ghost story probably really scare me. But other than that, I'm open to anything. <laughs> Do you have anything in mind uh, oh, I, right I now know, for, your another next, thing. for your next film? Yeah. Another thing I, I think will be really scary for me is a movie that doesn't have any meaning, just entertaining. I think that would be very challenging to me because I wouldn't know what to do. Um, I, I sort of glue on what it means before I uh, you know, ripple out to how I want to do it. Uh, for like, like pie, those, those shots, those visualized, you know, highly visualized shots, if I don't know how the character means what it means to the movie, I probably didn't know where to start. But some comedians or some movies that's pure entertainment and it's great, it gets you to the highest place where there's no reason. You know, uh, I, I think that's, that's the most incredible thing. I don't know how to do it. Or just something just funny that doesn't you know, mean anything. You don't realize anything, it's just like funny. If somebody put a gun against my head, so I'd just be funny. I probably wouldn't know what to do. I think that'd be really challenging. But other than that, those two, I, I, I don't know. I'd try anything. Well, we'll look forward to your meaningless film. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> very, very much. Um, but you, you don't have anything specific in mind for your next film. I suppose you'll take a little... Uh, uh, no, no. no. Don't don't hand me the script or anything. After okay. <laughs> no, I, I don't have anything in, in mind. Yeah. Well, you do uh, deserve a, a vacation. Maybe a nice Pacific cruise would be uh, something. <laughs> and uh, but best of luck with uh, Life of Pi. I think it's uh, launched into the world now, and uh, you know I expect uh, wonderful things for it. And it's uh, thank you for bringing that film, and thank you so much for coming today. It's been a wonderful uh, wonderful to listen to you talk about your work and your life. Uh, pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. 
Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here.